Welcome to Sagittarius Eye Audio Edition, Issue 25, Quarter 4, 3305. Word for word, the articles that appear in this quarter's Sagittarius Eye magazine, expertly recorded to keep you entertained and informed, out in the black. Editorial A common question among Pilot Federation members is, why do we do it? Why do we spend so many hours just flying? When a Pilots' Federation member reaches the dizzy heights of Triple Elite, a question posed by many is, why continue? What many non-pilots, or ground-pounders, don't understand is that being a pilot isn't something you do. It is something you are. It is something that is embedded deeply into the very fiber of your being. Certainly for some it may be a mere occupation, but they are never likely to make it their life's calling. For anyone with a staying power to reach triple elite, it can never be a mere occupation. It is a defining quality of who you are. A poet who lived during the dawn of human flight on earth wrote words that are as eloquent today as they were then. Oh, I have slipped the surly bonds of earth and danced the skies on laughter silver wings. Sunward I've climbed and joined the tumbling mirth. John Gillespie McGee, High Flight. The poem still captures the magic of spaceflight in our highly advanced machines, just as it did for the aviators of ancient times in their primitive machines of steel, wood, and cotton fabric. Collectively, we've slipped the surly bonds not merely of the Earth, but perhaps the very fabric of space-time itself with our frameshift drive. Without a second thought, we travel to Sagittarius A-star and through the core's boiling maelstrom of raw energy. What we do today was thought impossible in McGee's day, but whatever our technology, whatever our motivations, we retain the spirit of the aviator. For us, Triple Elite is not an end. It is merely the beginning of the next chapter. As Sagittarius I, we try to capture this spirit, to inspire the current and future pilots to get out in their ships and slip the surly bonds. Whatever they're calling, be it combat, exploration, trading, or mining. Whether you are harmless, aimless, and penniless, hoping to make your way in this galaxy, or already triple elite, we will endeavor to ensure we have something to inspire you to continue to slip the surly bonds. Inquisition. Getting to know the Chapter House. The Chapter House of Inquisition. For some, the Empire's secretive enforcement arm is a bulwark against corruption, the champion of the Emperor's will. For others, it is little better than a secret police, its jurisdiction everywhere and nowhere, answerable to no one. What is certain is that they are based in Arisa Lavigne Duval's home system of Kamandanu and headquartered at Shine Market. At first glance, Shine Market resembles any other Orbis-class space station one might encounter. Awe-inspiringly massive, of course, but Shine is different. It is humbling to ponder the high-level discussions that surely take place within the station's secure sections. To visit Shine is to be in close proximity to real political power. There exist perfectly legitimate reasons to visit Shine, Kamandanu is an agricultural system supported by the lush, earth-like world around which the Orbis revolves. 
Independent commanders of all backgrounds can find profit in delivering farming equipment and even bio-waste, and will find no shortage of foodstuffs and fine teas to fill their holes. When it comes to the station itself, one is reminded that one is very much deep within the Imperial core. Luxury and refinement permeate Shine Market. One's surroundings are crafted from fine materials and even the lighting is designed to mimic natural starlight. The men and women who comprise the station personnel are adorned with fitted uniforms and care is clearly taken with their appearance and grooming. Manners are perfect, a reflection of the Imperial propensity for ceremony and honor. Punctuality too is an Imperial value, and this correspondent was greeted by his host even as he was disembarking his shuttle. Inquisitor Jubai Himura of the Chapter House of Inquisition is not a tall man, but there is an energy to him, something that animates his every movement as he approaches. A long scar runs down the side of his face, crossing his eye and extending down to almost his jaw. He is dressed in simple blacks and greys, not quite a uniform, but not quite civilian garb either. The aquiline pendant of one of the Emperor's service glints on his erect collar. A curved sword hangs from a scabbard, the lacquered wood sheath itself a work of art. Himura bows in the imperial style, inquiring about my voyage. Pleasantries are exchanged all the way to a grand observation deck. Extended conversation is a hallmark of a Canarian culture, though the talk can hardly be dismissed as small. To visit imperial space is to immerse oneself in an environment of infinite communicational nuance. One must be conscious of one's every word and action. It is all too easy to appear accidentally rude or dismissive. This rule applies in greater degrees the closer that one moves to various spheres of power. At a formal event such as an imperial ball, much is conveyed by one's choice of attire and personal presentation. An impolitic word or improper gesture can be the ruin of one's social standing. Even the ill-timed rays of one's wine goblet can be the cause of a minor scandal. Fortunately, your correspondent is an outsider, and as such cannot be expected to blend in perfectly. Yet, this is also a fact-finding job, and polite conversation soon turns to questions. The topic moves to the chapter house of Inquisition, and Imura loses none of his clipped manner while speaking. The chapter house we almost never call it the Inquisition, serves at the pleasure of the Duval dynasty. It is the roof over people's heads and the ground that gives them footing, he says. It is an expertly delivered line, but there is more beneath the surface. By now we are in a grand observation deck, the greens and blues of Kamendanu's earth-like planet in full glorious view. It is on a civilian level, of course, men and women going about their business, Others pause to take in the scenery. The conversation is anything but straightforward, yet the point is at last reached where it feels safe to broach a more sensitive topic, that the chapter house enforces imperial culture by force. Himura is not visibly upset by the question, only turning to admire the view before him, his features serene. He gestures to the glasses of pure chilled water we hold. The water we now drink is from the seas of capital itself, he says. A simple thing. Really two hydrogen atoms combined with a single oxygen atom. It is often overlooked in favor of something more elegant. Wine, perhaps, or the creations of master chefs. The man pauses, taking a sip, then holds the glass of clear liquid between us. 
yet is as the foundation of countless other things, the element upon which so much depends. Honor works in the same way. The honor that being a subject of Akana bestows upon every imperial. It flows from the capital like the water in our glasses, a simple thing to be elevated in the right hands and polluted in the wrong. That is the imperial way. That is the necessity of the chapter house. I remain quiet. The view is impressive, and Humura's words invite contemplation, a most imperial habit. Critics might call it obfuscatory. At last, I summon the courage to return to the question of force, asked with greater directness. The issue of slavery is also broached. The Inquisitor remains placid, and he says, The chapter house is an imperfect mechanism of an imperfect society. Anyone who claims perfection for themselves or their people is delusional. Yet our ideals reach for the stars, and the higher one ascends, the greater their burden is to live them. Humura pauses, his eyes distant before continuing. Imperial slavery is often misunderstood and even more frequently maligned. In truth, the lowliest of slaves is more free than the grandest of senators. Do you remember what I said about expectations riding along with one station? It's true. Honor is everything to us. The slave is honored for their decision to cast aside the chains of debt by donning those of servitude. The client is honored for their loyalty to the patron and the patron for their loyalty to the senator. Yet that honor is always earned. The moment that one loses it, they have lost all that it brings as well. It would seem that the higher one ascends in imperial society, the more precarious one's situation. Again, Imura speaks carefully, his soft imperial cadence almost a song. Precarious is not quite correct, he continues. The citizen who acts for the welfare of their slaves will never know disgrace, just as the patron who reciprocates the loyalty of their clients can always count upon their support. It is more a question of harmony in all things and in all relationships. This harmony is disrupted by greed above one station or vulgarity below it. Poverty is not a vice, and neither is great wealth. Yet neither is a guarantor against dishonor. For the first time, Jubei Mura smiles, his eyes betraying a hint of the predator. One gloved hand grips the hilt of his sword, and he says, The difference is that a dishonorable man of wealth is a far greater threat than an unscrupulous pauper. The pauper generally errs because of the need to survive or protect his family. The rich man willingly sullies himself, dragging countless others down with him. In a perfect universe, there will be no need for men like me or organizations like the chapter house. His hand releases the hilt. The man bows slightly. The lush world of Kamandanu One continues its slow rotation before us. It is not a perfect universe, he finishes. With that, the Inquisitor turns to depart, his every step one of balance and purpose. This correspondent is left alone to ponder the meaning of his time on Shine Market. Are things truly as simple as his host described?
with the Inquisition's true purpose one of honourable order, or is this correspondent a babe in the Acanarian woods, ignorant of the wolves lurking in the trees? Lab Notes Lava Spouts Everybody likes a good volcano, right? Lava is definitely a sight to behold. There's more to it than impressive visuals. So, what is lava? And what are lava spouts? Lava is classified as hot, molten or semi-fluid rock that erupts from fissures from under a planet's surface. Lava spouts occur when bubbles from under the surface forcefully escape these fissures. In addition to lava, fiery rocks and minerals can shoot out of the planet's surface and crust. Although only a few materials can be gathered from lava spouts, many items could be found in their company. Your detailed surface scanner will reveal geological sites on a planet's surface. Be wary when approaching a lava spout, as high temperatures surrounding the fissure can cause damage to your SRV. Come to Daddy. Flying with the Fatherhood. For this issue, we spoke to Commander TK7725, the founder and squadron leader of the Fatherhood, to get to know one of the largest and most influential pilots federation groups. Hi there, TK. When and how did the fatherhood start? I was in the flight sheet late at night when my one-year-old son had finally gone to sleep. And I wondered how many other commanders were in the same position as me, only able to fly when their work and families allow. I decided to form a group and see if I could find some commanders in the same boat and hopefully get some of them together. I figured a handful of us together could wing up and make friends. And to my surprise, grown way beyond anything I could have imagined. It's now become a home for any commander who can't fly all day, every day, or just struggles for time. Anyone from parents, students, disabled people, or just people with busy jobs that involve working long shifts or traveling. Our motto is, when the kids go to bed, we go to space. We operate from our home base in the Hanjungai system most a substantial and well-equipped private navy. Now, with the reappearance of long-forgotten alien threats and ancient mysteries, we find ourselves fighting not only for the next generation of pilots, but for all humanity itself. What is the main goal of the Fatherhood? Our main goal is to have fun while helping others. Some fantastic friendships have been forged from this. What code do you follow, if any? Rule number one, no griefing. The fatherhood does not grief other pilots. This is our primary rule. Do not fire on other pilots unless first fired upon. Rule number two, be respectful to one another. We set the example for others to follow. Rule number three, help your fellow commanders. Rule number four, do not be afraid to ask for help. And rule number five, have fun. What should a new recruit of your faction know before joining? You don't have to be a dad to join the fatherhood. That's just how it started. All you need is a ship. How many pilots are in the fatherhood now? At present, we have 1,550 commanders across all platforms. 
What are some of your pilots' favorite ships? Being such a large and diverse group, it's hard to pinpoint some favorites. But the Federal Corvette, Imperial Cutter, Cobra Mark III, and Python are firm choices for most pilots. Oh, and not forgetting the Keelback. We recently ran an event called Keelback Awareness Week, which was great fun. How does the Fatherhood help new pilots? One way is to run wing missions with new recruits, which gets them used to flying from system to system, station docking, and the mission board. They also get a credit boost from the mission rewards. Winging up for some deep core mining or bounty hunting is also a great way to get used to a ship's mechanisms. We are lucky enough to have some knowledgeable veterans in our ranks who can offer great advice on shipbuilds, engineering, and many of the finer details of life in space. What does the Fatherhood offer pilots looking to join? Friendship, advice, and most of all, a shared appreciation of flight time. What is something the Fatherhood does, but other groups may not? We always make sure we greet new recruits straight away and do our best to make them feel welcome. I know there are many of our fellow groups that do this too, but it's definitely not something you see everywhere. What is in store for the future of the Fatherhood? We have Lost Souls 2, which is a follow-on to the exploration event we ran last year. The waypoints are currently being finalized, and we hope to be announcing full details very soon. We will also be running some small exploration and racing events too. Speedball. The Pilots Federation has a strange new extreme sport. We caught up with two of its wild-eyed practitioners, Commanders Primetime Casual and Sanderling. Hey there, Primetime Casual. What's your involvement with Speedball? Did you come up with the idea? Well, I can't say precisely who had the idea. But basically, it went like this. I had this idea of building my now infamous racing hauler and testing it out against high-gravity planets. We've covered your hauler in the magazine before. My final stop on this little tour was Key Hydra A7 with its 9G gravity. Commander Halo Jones heard of it and came to visit me there. All the while, I had discovered that toggling flight assist off on high-gravity worlds lets you increase your speed. So naturally, I shared that knowledge I demonstrated, he followed. I posted the speed, he went faster. I went faster again, he went faster. Uh, you see the pattern. And at some point we agreed on a set starting altitude. And then we said, well, you know, this is really, really fun. Let's make an event out of it. So from then on, I was co-host of the competition, looking for spots to have the event, refining rules, watching our submissions, doing publicity, trying to get sponsors for prizes, and so on and so on. How often have you run it? Initially, we thought it would be a one-off event. Surely nobody would be mad enough to take part in it. But they did. And then came the Scotsman as well. The plan was to run at least one per year, but then we did two in 33 or 4. The first was a real hardcore event given the location, but the second was much easier to access. With both Halo Jones and me on Distant Worlds, there was no regular speed build in early 3305, but we were asked to look over a Distant Ball variation. Speedball 3 is the fourth iteration of Speedball then. Okay, so this is Speedball 3. That's the one that's coming up shortly. 
Correct. Early November, an end-of-the-year bash, smashing ships of all sizes into a planetary settlement. Or, yeah, trying not to, and failing anyway. Coming up with the location is the hardest part, by the way. We spent a few weeks looking for this one. Why is it so hard? Gotta find the right ingredients. Right. It has to tick so many different boxes. Like a rocky cake. And what are those ingredients? High gravity, of course. It has to be close to the bubble. There needs to be a station to rebuy ships, and there should be a good gathering point like a geological PUI or a settlement or outpost. We kind of hope for canyons and rings as well, but that combination is near possible to find. We used the EDSM database to find a long list of candidates, and then half a dozen commanders went out and made sure they didn't just check those aforementioned boxes, but were nice as well. So how do you avoid just smacking into the planet? That is Sanderling's core competence. Being nice? Of course. No, not smacking into the ground. Oh yeah, that too. Seriously, though, we get how you end up going down very fast. What we're not sure about is how you avoid the dying bit. Do you just pitch up and boost? Pretty much. No, rather, go level and boost. I mean, at the end of the run, if you're doing it right, you're at a pretty shallow dive angle anyway. So there isn't much of upwards boost needed to save you. That's the most common mistake people make. Pitching up and boosting is usually fatal. Very inelegant too. Says the man who stops from 4200 meters per second in less than 50 kilometers. The thing is, no system on the ship is designed to slow you down from those speeds. So what a lot of people do is pitch up and engage flight assist. And that just plain cooks your ship, as the ship's AI can't handle that particular situation. Instead, just stop falling, gently. Lie down on the bed of gravity like a kitten on a fluffy pillow. So you overheat if you put flight assist back on at those speeds? It is a huge danger, yeah. Control in high G without flight assist is really about vertical thrusters. If you want to hover, you have to slow your forward vector down to under 50 meters per second for the bulk of the power to be able to hold you up. But that's no fun. Like Prime says, fast is where it's at. I tend to turn my ship and use boosts in reverse to slow flight assist off. I never fly with flight assist on. Ever. Most commanders are just afraid of gravity. And that leads to bad instincts in situations like that. Seriously, speed bowling teaches you a lot about gravity and flight assist off, and how your ship reacts to what inputs. What's the fastest speed clock so far? Do people's results tend to cluster together at an upper limit? Or is getting to the very high speeds something only a few people can do? Well, that's an interesting question, actually. There's usually a cluster near the top where speeds vary by tens of meters per second or less, and then a very even spread towards the bottom, since not all people have enough time, or funds, to run many attempts. At least in the competitive events. With more time, more altitude, and more gravity, you can get much faster. As for the speed? It is hard to compare, since the gravity is different with each location. But we're always aiming for top speeds in excess of 4000 meters per second. Slower than that doesn't feel right. The highest speed reached so far was 34,403 meters per second. That's also known as one sandaling. 34 kilometers per second? Yep. Wow. And yes, that's faster than the minimum supercruise speed. That is certainly the fastest that anyone has ever flown in normal space. It seems appropriate for an elite racer. Sanderling is a flying Scotsman, mad as a hatter. 
Does it seem as though there is a proportional relationship between the gravity of the planet and the maximum speed you can achieve? Or is the maximum achievable speed just a function of altitude and time available to practice? Gravity definitely plays a role, as that gives you the downward acceleration you can convert into forward momentum. For example, speedbolts 2 and 3 had the same set of rules in regards to starting altitude, 200 km. But with a difference of half a g, we can already see the difference in top speeds of 300 meters per second at the fastest point. So, yeah, although practice is obviously needed and altitude plays a huge role, the upper limit is defined by the available gravity. In the case of speed rolling, gravity is your thrust. Yes, I see. Do you use thrusters to begin your descent? How do you start? The classic start is from a complete standstill. In order to get going, you usually boost to get your maximum ship limited speed and your flight assist off to get the initial downwards momentum. After that, you're falling at more or less a 45 degree angle if you use basic techniques. And then the old upward vertical thrusters only game begins. The most common mistake is leaving the main thrusters going at full power, by the way. It not only drags you off course, but also saps power from the vertical thrusters. Disengage those engines. Interesting that the main thrusters sap power from the vertical thrusters. Only with flight assist off, if I'm not mistaken. Flight assist limits the power you can give to each set of thrusters anyway. Is there a best ship for speedball? Or rather, what characteristics do good speedball ships share? Presumably its official top speed isn't that important. That is a question we've debated a long time. So far the Viper has won all events, but the adder looks good as well. The key factors are actually power distributor for boost frequency and thruster placement on the belly. You want a flat-bellied ship with the thrusters angled straight down, not to the side, as they are on the ass, for example. What about mass? Presumably more massive is better. It's not as important as you'd think, as you still need the engines to perform within the maximum thrust spectrum. More mass usually just means the pilot has a harder time of slowing down or changing flight vectors. Okay, on to community stuff. How many people joined in for your first speedball event? The first speedball had around 20 participants who came all the way out to Kihydre. Sanderling won that one with his courier. Speedball 2 again had 20 competitors, but quite a few more that didn't post official speeds. That one was dominated by Imperial Eagles and Vipers. Distant Bowl had over 40 participants. There were all kinds of ships, obviously, and all fitted for exploration. The winner was a crate Phantom, with the regular crates performing well. Of course, there weren't many Vipers and Anders out there. Looking back, it's amazing just how many anacondas, corvettes and belugas took part. Do the same people tend to take part in the various events? Oh yes, we have our regulars. Some even abandon their long-term exploration trips just to come back for speedball. Aspo in his infamous racing corvette is one example. There's also Halo Jones in the Sidewinder and of course Sanderling, the reigning champion. The Sidewinder is a great racing ship. Again. It's light enough for the thrusters and has excellent ventral thruster placement. Have you approached the Pilots' Federation to be featured on full throttle? They have expressed interest, and I'm in talks about the prizes. For speedballs 1 and 2, they provided paint jobs, and we're currently trying to figure out the exact prizes for speedball 3. Commander Benedetti is a huge racing fan, so might be that they do some bowling. When is speedball 3 going to take place? Do you have a location yet? The event is scheduled for the weekend of the 9th and 10th November 3305 at Magulus Depot in the 61 Virginia system. 
There are a few announcements out there and more to come. Residents are slowly either getting used to a few kilotons of space frame metal buzzing past or are evacuating. We are featuring a special sandling challenge where you have to pass low between two residential towers while barrel rolling your ship. We'll get some Sagittarius I press there. Thank you very much for taking the time to chat. It's been a pleasure. Don't forget, fly fast and miss the ground. Speedball 3 took place on the weekend of the 9th and 10th of November. The Silent Surge of the Alliance In less than a century, the Alliance has grown from a local uprising to one of three superpowers dominating our galaxy. Yet despite being such an immense success, it seems that few today understand the significance of its emergence. This article takes an in-depth look at the recent history of the superpower. The Alliance of Independent Systems enjoyed significant growth near the end of the 33rd century. The Alliance Assembly started to broker trade agreements between systems, even outside of its membership circle. Strong economic cooperation led to many more states viewing the Alliance of Independent Systems as a true alternative to the other powers. From this time on, the galaxy began to see the Alliance as an emerging superpower. Its true explosion in size and power was about to begin. Many people, including high-ranking politicians in the Federation, were surprised to see the Alliance reach over 200 members by the end of the 34th century. Even to this day, some are unaware of the continuous growth of the Alliance. Its small size and avoidance of military conflict has not grabbed attention in the way that Federation and Empire saber-rattling did at the beginning of the century. The War for Lug of 3301 is a good example of the Alliance leadership's reluctance to enter a conflict. Just four years ago, there were still good arguments not to see the Alliance as a proper superpower. The Alliance lacked many of the trappings of its rivals, such as capital ships, and the actual size of the Alliance was still minuscule compared to its two rivals. While both the Empire and Federation covered well over a quarter and a third of inhabited space respectively, the Alliance sat at a mere 1.2%. For the Alliance to be recognised as a superpower, it took one final change. That change was initiated by an institution which is arguably just as influential as any superpower the Pilots' Federation. With the return of the independent pilot as a decisive factor in galactic politics in the 34th century, power balances were guaranteed to shift. Amplified by the introduction of the pilot's minor faction, covered in a previous issue of this publication, systems started to change hands at an unprecedented pace. Calling back to its early days, the fate of this young superpower was once again being shaped by influential individuals. When it comes to spreading influence and attracting new member systems, their organised efforts have made the Alliance stand out. Though pilots may be enabling many new independent power blocks to develop across civilised space, raw data proves that the Alliance of Independent Systems has been a primary beneficiary. In the few years since 3300, the Alliance has quadrupled in size. The Alliance of Independent Systems has recently crossed the 1000 member mark reaching a milestone in its existence that Mick Turner might not have imagined in his wildest dreams. While the Federation and Empire continue to shrink, losing increasing numbers of systems to independence movements, the Alliance covers now roughly 5% of inhabited space and keeps expanding. It may still be the smallest faction on paper, but its actual strength becomes apparent when taking things such as population density and economic output into account. 
The Alliance's influence has in fact risen so far that it is now informally recognised by the Federation and Empire as an equal, proven by the Alliance's role in pan-superpower initiatives such as Aegis. The Alliance is now an established part of the new galactic order. Meanwhile, its expansion continues, bolstered by the actions of the Pilots' Federation members. This remains a turbulent process, just like in the old days skirmishes and crises continue to occur when opposing forces clash. Alliance efforts are sometimes just as resisted as those of other factions, as seen by the repeating conflicts in the old worlds or by the forceful pushes of some Alliance factions into the heart of Federation-dominated space. Edmund Mann is often credited for setting the modern framework of the economic success of the Alliance, and by extension most of the upper regions. His commercial networks encompass several hundred nodes. The nickname Patron of the Traders suits him, as his supporters are usually busy hauling. In Alliance fashion, they are hauling paperwork. Reflecting the fact that the Alliance of Independent Systems is not merely a military alliance, but also an economic and political one, Alliance enforcers can be found far outside Alliance borders. They are there to fulfil treaties and trade agreements signed with local governments, most of which are Mars doing. The Universal Cartographics Powers Map gives a rough estimate of the economic reach that Marn has. Under the Prime Minister's lead, his pilots have made their power the dominating force, leading the Galnet charts in the most weeks since their introduction in 3301. Marn's continuous success is the result of many factors, but it definitely helps that his opponents are locked in conflict with each other. Unlike the Federal and Imperial powers, Marn has been able to stay out of most quarrels and has established neutrality with his neighbours. Prerequisite for that neutrality has been an ability to defend himself as well as skilled diplomacy. To give an example of this defence, in February 3302, Felicia Winters decided to take the system DR Crucis, ignoring regional factions' desire to remain untouched by her interference. Null, the independent faction in question, decided to resist and team up with Winters' rival Edmund Mann. Skirmishes continued for months, with expansion attempts being constantly thwarted. Influential supporters of Winters eventually decided to divert enemy forces from the area to undermine Marne's systems, escalating the conflict between the two. However, this merely rallied supporters of Edmund Marne, who previously had no interest in the conflict as it was not affecting Alliance members. Not only could Marne's pilots defend most of their systems, but over the course of the following months they struck back at Winters, making her war effort expensive and lengthy. Alliance strategists made use of the same old tactics that their founders did. They made extensive plans to ensure resources were spent efficiently and would yield results. In total, they managed to undertake seven weaponized expansions, hurting Winter's profits and contesting her space, while actually increasing their own profits. This was a novel move at the time, and it added drag to Winter's economy. Edmund Mann left the war in a powerful position, which he still holds to this day. Despite a comparably small number of supporters, he would soon control by far the largest area of all powers. Even when hit by saboteurs and automated vessels over the next two years, his power would not diminish. Recent Alliance expansion has been largely thanks to the involvement of pilots who decided to commit themselves to that goal. Like all groups of pilots who support their favourite causes, this sometimes leads them to be in conflict with others. As a result, we have come to witness many new recent conflicts, some of which saw the Alliance of Independent Systems confront independent forces for the first time in history. This has sometimes been controversial, especially around the Old Worlds, the cluster of stars surrounding the Lave system. This complex topic is beyond the scope of this article. 
The rapid growth of Alliance influence on human civilization during its short span of existence has surprised many. For historians, the rise of the Alliance of Independent Systems bears instructive lessons about power and stability. Recent challenges for the new superpower raise interesting questions for its future. How will the organization and its supporting independent pilots respond to the emerging independent powers on their borders? Will we come to see new conflicts or new partnerships? The most important question may be, how far can the Alliance go? In the end, there is always a limit to how much growth can be achieved. With the Alliance pilot community being much smaller than the ones of the Federation and Empire, that limit might not be very far away. One of the major reasons for the loss of territory suffered by both the Empire and Federation is that they do not have enough independent pilot support to take care of their vast number of systems, covering a little more than one-fifth of human space. In contrast, one of the major reasons for the growth of the Alliance has been that it had many more supporters than needed to secure its own systems. As uncontested space for factions to expand becomes rarer, the maintenance of systems requires ever more resources. At the moment, it seems that the Alliance will continue increasing its influence. Almost all systems lost during the Ghost Ships crises, covered in depth in issue 18 of this magazine, have been reclaimed. Not only does the Alliance of Independent Systems continue to expand into federal territory in spite of increased opposition, but it also arguably enjoys a much better connected and coordinated pilot community. An expression of newly gained unity among Alliance-friendly pilot groups has been the foundation of the Alioth Council at the end of 3304, a forum that seeks to represent the members' joint interests to the outside world. They stand in a long tradition that sees the Alliance of Independent Systems being shaped by the actions of the pilots who support it. Railguns, incendiary multi-cannons and plasma accelerators. Cannon Research have performed an in-depth study on different weapon types and their respective damage distribution. Their analysis finds the mathematical truths that govern these weapons. Not all commanders are of a mathematical bent, so we looked at the analysis to see what the research found and present the results here in a practical, digestible manner for every pilot. We won't go into the mathematics here. Anyone who wants to see the full detail in all its glory should read the Canon paper. There are 12 basic weapon types available for commanders that do not require alignment with a specific power nor the services of a tech broker. Each of these weapons has its own unique damage characteristics and preferred uses. Earlier this year, Commander Maligno of Canon Interstellar Research thoroughly analysed a subset of these weapons, namely plasma accelerators, railguns, incendiary multi-cannons, high-yield shell cannons, overload munitions for seeker missiles and inertial impact burst lasers. The first three of these will be covered in this article. Speculation about the exact damage distribution for different weapon types has long run rampant within the galactic community. As no exact numbers have been given by the Pilots' Federation or weapons manufacturers, this unsatisfactory situation continued for years and was the subject of frequent arguments over beer and onion head. Much speculation had sound foundations, but no one had attempted to prove it. For railguns, the speculation was 40% kinetic 60% thermal damage. 
plasma accelerators were believed to deliver 60% absolute and 20% each for thermal and kinetic damage. For incendiary multi-cannons, no kind of numbers were available, just the unsatisfactory statement that the modification converts a large portion to thermal damage. The study conducted by Cannon Interstellar Research was able to provide solid numbers to replace all such speculation with careful experimentation and rigorous mathematical analysis. In the end, the study concluded that most of the galactic community's speculation was more or less accurate. Railguns deal one-third kinetic and two-thirds thermal damage. Plasma accelerators indeed do 60% absolute damage and 20% thermal and kinetic damage each. The incendiary weapons convert 90% of their damage to thermal damage, while 10% remains as kinetic damage. Data acquisition was performed using the following method. Experimenters ensured the target ship's shields were at 100%, then the system's capacitor was emptied by activating a shutdown field neutraliser. This was to ensure the shields did not begin to recharge. Discrete shots were fired at the target. It was important not to bring down the shields completely, so it was possible to determine the damage done specifically to the shields. After each shot, both commanders noted the remaining percentage of the target's shields. The target ship, a Lacon Type 9 Heavy, was equipped with relatively weak shields, about 250 to 300 megajoules, as shield displays have an error margin of 1%. The lower the shield strength, the lower the absolute error. The exact shield generator used was a 7C biweave with either thermal or kinetic resistance engineering, depending on the experiment that was being conducted. For some of the experiments, the shields were brought close to 0%, again, to reduce the margin of error by using the largest possible numeric range for calculation. Shield boosters were sometimes used to slightly strengthen the shields while keeping resistances at the same level. In the end, experiments and calculations showed a relatively consistent damage distribution. The experiment only tested Class IV multi-cannons, but according to the Cannon Interstellar Research Group, the value should, most probably, be the same for any other weapon with this kind of experimental effect. What does this mean for Pilot Federation members? First, plasma accelerators. This weapon uses energy from the ship's power plant turn the ammunition into superheated plasma, which is then fired towards the target. The ammunition is simple and relatively inexpensive, since most of the weapon's damaging effects come from using the ship's power output to turn it into giant glowing purple balls of death. These weapons deal absolute damage, which bypasses the resistances that can make an enemy so much harder to crack. For engineered shields especially, the absolute strength will usually be much lower than any of the strengths including resistances. So the researchers confirmed that at 60% of the damage plasma accelerator deals out will always be inflicted upon hitting the target, bypassing all resistances. The remaining 40% is split equally between kinetic and thermal damage, making this weapon the ultimate all-rounder in the hands of a skilled combat pilot. It hits shields and hull equally as hard. This weapon is mainly used in small numbers, usually on the large and huge hard points, as the main armament, to inflict heavy or crippling blows on the enemy. As these weapons also are only delivered on fixed mounts and have a long reload time, they function best when fitted to smaller, more manoeuvrable ships, such as the Ferdinand's, or used up close to make sure that the shot hits home. 
The plasma accelerator does require some skill to use. The projectile travels relatively slowly, requiring the pilot to lead the target and favouring use when close. It has a heavy drain on the weapons capacitor, so the combat pilot needs to make sure every shot counts. It is also important that the projectile fully connects with its target. A glancing blow results in much reduced damage. Next, railguns. Instead of using chemical propellants, these weapons use magnetic rails to accelerate projectiles to very high velocities. The thermal to kinetic damage distribution for these weapons makes them effective at taking out shields while still doing adequate hull damage. They do have one special characteristic that comes into play once the target shields are down. They are even better at taking out the systems of the target without destroying it. And this characteristic can be improved upon with the Super Penetrator modification. Super Penetrator projectiles damage every subsystem on their way through the target ship. This is useful to incapacitate ships if the plan is to rob them. As with plasma accelerators, railguns are only available on fixed mounts. Again, this requires more skill from the user, and railguns are typically more useful on smaller, more manoeuvrable ships. It requires a bit of practice to use them to their full potential. They also need a brief pre-charge time before the projectile is fired, so they're less useful for opportunistic shots to an enemy just happens to fly through the crosshairs, and the trigger pull needs more careful timing than other weapons. The shots are so fast that pilots must aim directly at their target without giving the shot any lead. This is often referred to on the combat scene as a hit-scan weapon. Finally, we have incendiary multi-cannons. While incendiary weapons have existed on Earth since at least ancient Roman times, their character has changed somewhat in the intervening millennia. Early incendiary weapons were used to set buildings on fire. These weapons were mostly arrows that were chemically tipped, usually with a mixture of sulphur and iron, and set alight. The chemical reaction would release a great deal of heat and not be extinguished by the arrow's flight through the air. Buildings at the time were often constructed from flammable materials could easily be set ablaze. Sadly, we don't know exactly how modern incendiary multi-cannons work, as the engineers are reluctant to let the public know the secrets of their work. But in the vacuum of space, an incendiary multi-cannon round requires a chemical fuel and oxidizer combination to ensure a high temperature. Unlike the arrows that the Romans put to use, an incendiary multi-cannon will not set an enemy ship alight, given the lack of oxygen and flammable materials. However, when these extremely hot incendiary rounds impact their target, they inflict mostly thermal damage. Whatever the chemical mixture used, we now know they cause 90% thermal and 10% kinetic damage. As thermal damage is generally most effective against shields, these weapons are very good at depleting them. The incendiary multi-cannon modification can be applied to every kind of multi-cannon, fixed, gimbaled and turreted, which makes them well suited for any kind of ship, from small and nimble to big and sluggish. Since they do nearly all thermal damage, the best use in combination with other weapon types if the aim is to destroy enemy ships. Weapons with high kinetic damage, such as multi-cannons without the incendiary weapon modification, can be used for this. The paper from Canon doesn't just shed light on the kinds of damage these weapons do, but presents it in a rigorous, provable and repeatable mathematical manner which allows us to draw concrete conclusions.
It is unfortunate that weapons manufacturers did not publish this data themselves. But clever and committed commanders have proven they can extract the data on their own. All it cost them was a little time and some damaged Type 9s. We hope this article will help commanders make their weapon choices supported by confirmed facts rather than barroom speculation. Christmas Carrier's Convoy, a Colonia tradition. It was only three and a half years ago that the legendary Jacques station attempted its journey to Beagle Point. Their journey was suddenly cut short, leaving Jacques Orbis station marooned in Eol Pro-U sector. The station's new resting place, encountered almost by chance, became a new rallying point for humanity. The Colonia Nebula, as it came to be known, began without creature comforts, and in its first year a number of expeditions were organized to bring colonists and some cheer to the new community that was emerging so far from humanity's ancestral home. It quickly became clear that Colonia was here to stay. Supplies continued to arrive, the Colonia Council was established, and the region's first spaceport, Colonia Hub, was built on the moon Colonia 2A. Some 22,000 light years from the bubble, Colonia lacked almost all of its amenities. At the turn of 3303, the region's population was approximately 66,000, mostly miners, plus a not insignificant number of people fleeing problems in the bubble. There was a steady influx of migrants, but little to keep them entertained. Some festivities were needed to boost morale amongst the new colonists. While the original story of Christmas becomes somewhat blurred the further you get from its origins on Sol, it is still a widely celebrated holiday. The exact form of the celebrations may vary greatly. While onion head farmers on Panam and Kappa Fornassus might have a completely different set of traditions from those of the residents of Mikhail Gorbachev station above Earth, there is one tradition that is common to all, and that is gift giving. Cynics often say that were it not for the gift giving tradition and the merciless commercial exploitation of it, the holiday would have been discarded well over a millennium ago. Others disagree particularly those who followed the religious sects that began the tradition. In any case, a group of commanders, amongst them many pilots who flew on the August Exodus expedition only a few months earlier, decided that the proper celebration of Christmas would be a great morale boost to the residents of the Spartan and harsh Colonia. This time, instead of essential supplies to repair Jacques Station, the supply mission's main aim was to bring cheer and much-needed restock of Jacques' bar. The Christmas Carrier's Convoy, launched from LTT-9846, headed up by Commander Cohen Leth under the auspices of the fledgling Colonia Citizens Network with a fleet of over 100 ships. The route would make use of the recently established Colonia Connection Highway, a string of half a dozen outposts built only a couple of months earlier along the route of the August Exodus. Ships from the Earth Defense Fleet, the 9th Legion, the Iridium Wing, SEPP and the Prismatic Imperium were pledged to provide a defensive escort for the fleet. The first Christmas Carrier's Convoy was hailed a great success, with the majority of the fleet arriving at Jacques Station and Mars on 2nd January 3303. The Christmas Carrier's Convoy didn't merely bring just goods. Many of the commanders on the convoy remained in Colonia for a time, and a number of celebratory events, undoubtedly good for the morale of Colonia citizens, continued in the wake of the convoy, 
in and around the colonial system. As December 3303 rolled in, the situation in Colonia has changed immensely compared to just a year earlier. Several waves of colonization had taken place and the population has expanded almost tenfold, with almost half a million colonists calling Colonia home. Colonia was no longer a backwater place with a few stations caked in dust from processing mined minerals, but a rapidly growing community. The Colonia Expansion Initiative had drawn to a conclusion and there were now a number of varied factions putting down roots in this new outpost of humanity. Yet another convoy from the bubble was, by this stage, not something desperately needed to prevent a tiny outpost morale from collapsing, but more of a way of bringing luxuries to make everyone's life just a little bit more comfortable. As such, the Colonia Citizens Network did not intend to run another convoy itself. The baton was passed to Commander Cyrus Tamas, who organized the second Christmas convoy in association with the Shadow of the Phoenix and the Colonia Citizens Network. The second convoy in 3303 was rather smaller than the first, with a fleet of 31 ships. It departed from Heritanus on December 2nd, 3303 and arrived in Centralis on December 24th, 3303, after following the route established by the Colonia Connection Highway. However, the convoy saw a significant uptick on its third run in 3304, with a fleet of 94 ships, nearly as large as the first convoy. This departed from the carbon system on the 1st of December 3304 and arrived in Centralis on the 24th December. Once again it was headed by Commander Cyrus Tamas, in association with the Shadow of the Phoenix and the Colonia Citizens Network. Many commanders on the Christmas Carrier's Convoy 3 had an additional goal of giving their newly built deep exploration vessels a proper sea trial, in advance of the much longer Distant Worlds 2 expedition. The convoy would make an excellent opportunity to test the performance of larger ships intended to support the resource gathering goals of the Distant Worlds 2 station building mission. In December 3305, the Christmas Carrier's Convoy celebrates its fourth journey from the bubble to Colonia. Not only has Colonia changed almost beyond recognition since the first convoy, but also the Colonia Connection Highway has more than tripled in size, now boasting no fewer than 20 outposts, stations and bases. Some of those bases, it must be noted, are more luxurious than others. While many will enjoy the sights at Edinburgh's Watch in the Lagoon Sector, Few want to spend the night at Mjolnir's Rath, a detention centre in the Neyajai sector, some 7,600 light-years from the bubble. At the time of writing, the convoy's 3305 route had not been set in stone, nor the fleet size finalised. Cyrus Tamas said, We plan to use a similar route, but we always throw in a new waypoint for nostalgia. Something new, or the scenic views. Regular base camps for the convoy have always included the Colonia Connection Highway surface stations, effectively retracing the route of the August Exodus which established this particular route. This includes the dogleg through the Bouvinst region, as well as the stunning night skies of Sakakawea spaceport. Once again, it is likely the target arrival date in Centralis will be set as December 24, 3305, which followers of the tradition known as Christmas Eve. The Colonia Nebula now boasts 71 inhabited systems with 99 ports and is, without a doubt, entirely self-sufficient. Even so, with a burgeoning migrant population, 
The last census in 3304 put the total population at around 10 million inhabitants. The luxuries of distant homeworlds are in huge demand. The arrival of the Christmas Carriers Convoy will therefore be a highly anticipated event for all those that call the Colonia Nebula their home. At the very least, Jacques will get the restock of the specialities that he so richly deserves. Why do they hate us? The Pilots' Federation is one of the most mistrusted and misunderstood organisations in the galaxy. Why? The Pilots' Federation is ostensibly politically neutral. It stands apart from the Alliance, Federation and Empire and is occasionally likened to a fourth superpower, despite many of its members being drawn from each of those three factions. With its independence comes a total absence of scrutiny. Once a person has earned their wings in the Pilots' Federation, they essentially earn the ability to transcend legal jurisdictions. Has a member broken a law in your space? To bring them to justice? You have to catch them. It's also notoriously insular. Outsiders have little insight into how it's governed or what passes for rules within its ranks. A rudimentary Pilots Federation bounty system exists for members who transgress its opaque rules, but this is little solace to a trader who's just lost everything to a Pilots Federation commander. The organisation does not protect its members from the law of the jurisdictions through which they fly, but neither does it hold them to account. To those living on orbital cities or terraformed worlds, we Pilots Federation members seem unaccountable outlaws. For the Pilots Federation, manipulation of systems governments seems too easy. Billionaires flying hundred-ton warships can trivially tip a conflict in favour of one faction or another. This leads to outsize influence. The Pilots' Federation has been linked to several enormous political events and trends over recent years. For a good example, see The Silent Surge of the Alliance, also in this issue. Some ask whether an unelected tiny cadre of wealthy footloose freelancers deserve that much power and influence. We, nomadic soldiers of fortune, even have a combat rank system. The more we kill, the higher our rank. An elite rank in combat is one of the most prestigious awards that can be obtained in the Pilots' Federation, but it's little more than a kill tally. This is seen by many as the glorification of violence, and it escapes nobody that with the upper echelons of the grisly elite ranking system often comes spectacular wealth. Our wealth comes from less salubrious sources too. Nobody is better equipped than a Pilots' Federation member for smuggling between jurisdictions, fueling black markets and pocketing obscene profits. Pilots' Federation members are thought to be amongst the biggest traders in slaves. We can exhaust mining hotspots in a matter of days, stripping asteroid belts of riches that small mining corporations and contractors might otherwise have relied upon for years. Being disconnected from societies makes it easy for us to move around and go where the best opportunities are. Once we've tipped a system into lockdown, exhausted its minerals, ejected its democratic government and pillaged its spaceways, we're free to simply jump to another part of the bubble in moments, leaving the inhabitants wretched and miserable. 
Our ships spread pandemics and plagues, as we've seen twice in the last five years, both the Cerberus incident in 3301 and more recently the blight affecting agricultural worlds were spread by Pilots' Federation members. The Pilots' Federation was established in 2805 in response to a surge in privately owned ships. The group was created to share reliable trade route information and protect its members from the increasing threat of galactic piracy. However, this dedication to mutual protection appears to have been abandoned. Members are not afraid to light up the vacuum with overcharged weapons and litter it with the floating wreckage of their fellow members. There are plenty of alliances under the umbrella of the Pilots' Federation, but just as many enmities too. Often conflicts are not about a superpower ideology, such as the long-running tensions between the Empire and Federation, but about power, expansion and money. Planet-bound observers might look up at the warships jousting over their fate amongst the stars and ask, do any of them have my interests in mind? In recent years, as more and more Pilots' Federation groups have taken control of entire star systems, many civilians have questioned their qualifications for running planetary governments. If the Pilots' Federation are ruthless murderers, soldiers of destruction and tyrannical raiders, why do they go unchallenged by billions? The organisation is few in number, it doesn't publish membership information, but it's thought it might comprise as few as a couple of million pilots. However, the average wealth of its members is easily into the tens of millions, and this collective wealth and power give the organisation tremendous clout. The Federation, the Empire and the Alliance could conceivably hold them to account, if they put their minds to it, but none would like to let their rivals know just how extensively they rely on the footloose club of pilots. Extensive training, unlimited access to engineering, A-grade modules, multi-million credit ships and a plethora of technology give Pilots' Federation members an edge few navies can match. Why exactly do these independent pilots do what they do? A member of the Pilots' Federation could have come from anywhere. One might be a freed or escaped slave. A Federal Navy deserter? A Royal Scion fleeing an oppressive family? Or a multitude of other things, they might be a force for good in the spaceways, protecting traders, expanding the bounds of human knowledge, carrying essential medicine to the front lines of disaster. Still, in space, all we are to the people below are ships and ID tags. Mudbooters hate, fear and mistrust us because we are unaccountable and our wealth gives us the kind of freedom they can only dream of. What's more, that freedom is the route to yet more wealth. Ultimately, our reputation among the trillions of settled humanity is unlikely to improve as long as that envy remains among our critics. The East India Company Ask most traders today if they know of the East India Company and without a doubt you'll get an affirmative response at least in Imperial space or regions bordering it. 
Visit a seedy bar in Reedquat, its atmosphere thick with onion head smoke and the stench of Reedquatian ultra coffee, and undoubtedly the patrons will know of the East India Company, given their most precious herbal refreshment comes straight from the corporation's headquarters. Ask around in the Federation, and while eyes may roll and jaws may tighten, you get the idea. The East India Company is a company whose reputation has spread far and wide, although in recent years such chatter has been mostly propelled by controversy over the production of Onion Head and the now long-running trading post. The company, while sizable, is certainly not the largest in the galaxy. That distinction would go to the Da Vinci Corporation of Wolf 1230, nor does it hold the most assets. The record holder there is the Alliance's Wolf 406 Transport Company, laying claim to no fewer than 230 stations and outposts. It's not the largest Imperial faction. That would be the like dealer of Michel, who controls 73 systems from their capital in the Michel system. The East India Company can, on the other hand, lay claim to the title of the largest and most successful Imperial corporation with, at the time of writing, no fewer than 45 systems and 89 stations and outposts controlled from Kappa Fornasis. The company also claims to have the longest historical existence of any corporation in the galaxy. Many historians dispute this claim and see linking the 34th century East India Company with its 17th century namesake as stretching history far past the breaking point, but at least some believe there is at least sufficient ancestral linkage between the two that the association is valid. There are certainly parallels between the business practices of the 17th century company and its present-day namesake. To understand the philosophy of the 34th century East India Company, it's worth looking back into history to 17th century Earth, a period when the idea that the planets orbited Sol was still sufficiently controversial that people were cast out of major institutions for believing it. The original British East India Company was formed in the year 1600 and became a major trader of tea, spices and textiles, moving goods over the Earth's oceans using wind-powered ships. These merchant ships, known as East Indiamen, were often the fastest on the high seas. Many were tea clippers, large vessels with three masts festooned with sails and complex rigging designed for speed. The name clipper comes from the verb to clip, or to move swiftly, and it won't be lost on most readers that the Gutamai Imperial Clipper is one of the fastest large ships you can buy today. As the company grew in size, its growth was not merely economic. It acquired its own military and engaged in brutal ventures of commercially motivated conquest. Its military consisted of both naval and ground forces. The company formed an efficient and well-trained army, becoming the most powerful military force in the Indian subcontinent. Its unbridled expansionism was its eventual undoing, and by the 1770s, almost 200 years after the company's foundation, it found itself overextended and at risk of collapse. The inevitable downfall that followed took another century to run its course as successive British governments propped the company up. The corporate vestiges survived for a while as a legal framework, and there were a few revivals of the name in the late 20th and early 21st centuries, but these were mere branding exercises. As these revivals inevitably faltered, the name disappeared. Twelve centuries later, in February 3301, 
the name resurfaced as a project of Emperor's Grace, led by the wealthy imperial industrialist Yahina Yasavor. Savor claimed to be a direct blood descendant of the 17th century East India Company founder, John Watts. Her project rapidly gained momentum and the newly formed company quickly came into conflict with Emperor's Grace, at which point the newly formed East India Company broke away, establishing itself in its own right as an imperial corporation. The company initially based itself at Grand Horizons, stationed in Swan Queno, at the time a rather obscure star system nearly 100 light-years from Akana, although much of the company's trading activities were centered around Tawilo and its surrounding systems. The company almost immediately acquired its own military forces and, to put its mark on the galaxy, in March 3301, joined a coalition whose goal was to oppose what it saw as Federation Expansionism. The first operation, known as Armchop, began on the 1st of March 3301 with an effort to prevent the Federation from building a capital ship in BD-032338. The blockade was ultimately a failure, and the new ship, the FNS Nevermore, was completed on time, even though the capital ship's launch almost ended in disaster when its automatic systems accidentally opened fire on the station at which it was moored. Not content with the failed blockade, the company went to war in Lu and supported the Crimson State Group against the Federation. In the beginning, it looked like the Federation would once again prevail through sheer military might, but the coalition arrayed against them now included a rapidly growing East India Company trade fleet that kept the Crimson State Group's supply lines fully open in the face of the powerful Federation opposition. While the victory against the Federation in Lu was by no means the sole work of the East India Company, the company's role in the conflict made its mark and put the East India Company firmly on the map, both in the Empire, whose leadership was privately delighted at the Federation's discomfort, and elsewhere. During most of 3301, the Kappa Fornasis system had hardly been out of the news. In December 3300, the Federation singled out the system for its production of the narcotic Onionhead. They intended to eradicate the crop grown only on the planet Panem. The bombing of Onionhead farms began in earnest, and while ultimately the Federation were unable to take over the system, the planet's agricultural systems were largely laid to waste. Production of the narcotic had been severely reduced, although not entirely eliminated. Other strains had appeared elsewhere in defiance of the Federation, most notably the Lucan variety produced in Tanmark. Meanwhile, the East India Company had cultivated what ended up as a short-lived relationship with Zemina Torval, which undoubtedly raised the company's visibility with the Empire at large. With a unique crop and a destroyed economy, Capafornasis was ripe for a takeover. While the East India Company would tout themselves as the benevolent saviors of the system, the reality is rather different. The company clearly saw a unique commodity which could firmly cement its trading power within the Empire and beyond, just as trade in tea and opium had powered the British East India Company in the 18th century. The takeover of Capafornasus on the 21st of October 3301 was a calculated move entirely motivated by cold commercial imperatives, rather than a humanitarian project. With an economy distressed from repeated federal incursions, Kappa Phonasis was a weak system which could be bought out at a rock-bottom price. 
Nevertheless, a native of Capofornassus named Jared Lynch would be admitted to the East India Company board as a company vice president and would become the public face of the East India Company for any commander considered an ally. As soon as the takeover was completed, Imperial slaves poured into the system to complete the rebuilding of the Onion Head Farms far below Harvest Port Station, the East India Company's new headquarters. It wasn't long before the good old days of Onion Head trading were back in full swing. The East India Company remains headquartered at Capafornassus to this day, and is the producer of both the original Onion Head strain from Panem and the newer Lucan variety from Luca in the Tanmark system, as well as Tanmark Tranquil Tea. Just as the British East India Company in the 18th century was known for tea and narcotics, the 34th century East India Company is known for the same. Aside from the production of Onion Head and Tanmark Tranquil Tea, the most well-known activity of the company is the Trading Post. The trading post came out of an initially small operation known by the rather unusual name Kajit Haswares, which began in January 3303 as the Thargoid threat was growing. The goal of this operation was to provide a method whereby independent commanders could more quickly and easily obtain goods demanded by the galaxy's reclusive ship modification engineers. Engineered ships would do better against any alien threat to commerce. The project was eventually formalized as the Trading Post and continues to this day, ensuring that commanders can obtain the commodities needed to gain access to the engineers in the most time-efficient manner. In a turnaround from the company's earlier strongly imperial-only sentiment, the Trading Post is open to commanders of all allegiances. The Trading Post has not been without controversy. Given its close relationship with suppliers of rare goods, it was only a matter of time before a problem with one of these suppliers threatened to draw the company into a conflict. From the point of view of the East India Company, this conflict would come from an unlikely source, far outside its normal sphere of influence, the lave system. The demand for Lavian brandy by the engineer Didi Vatterman, a specialist in shields and an engineer whose services are in high demand, soon brought the East India Company into close cooperation with the ruling faction of the Lave system, and this meant that the company had a very strong interest in keeping the brandy flowing freely. In May 3304, trouble began brewing. The Lave radio network, an independent faction and well-known broadcaster, took control of the system from the Governing Alliance Corporation. Initially, this had no impact on the supply of Lavian brandy. However, the Lave system leaving the Alliance did not sit well with many Alliance factions. Many Alliance commanders attempted to force the return of Lave to the Alliance fold, beginning a sustained campaign against the Lave radio network. By early August 3304, the security situation in Lave had become unsustainable. The system had been in and out of constant security lockdowns believed to have been caused by the actions of Alliance-aligned commanders, and there was now a clear and present threat to the smooth supply of Lavian brandy to the trading post. The East India Company was accused of taking sides and directly collaborating with the Lave radio network, in effect meddling with the internal affairs of the Alliance. In response, a company spokesman simply said, Any rumours of company involvement? are just that, rumours. As August 3304 wore on, an added complication was the sudden and unexpected UA bombing 
the act of sabotaging a station by delivering large quantities of Thargoid sensors, of George Lucas Station in the nearby Alliance-controlled Listy system. Accusations were made against the company by the Listy authorities, but again the East India Company hotly denied any involvement. In November 3304, the East India Company launched the Thanksgiving 3304 expedition to Colonia in collaboration with the Lave Radio Network, which had retained control of the Lave system. Some saw this as confirmation that the East India Company had been rather more involved with the Lave conflict than it cared to let on, but the company continues to deny any direct involvement. It insists that the Thanksgiving expedition was merely an act of kindness towards the citizens of Colonia to ensure that Jake's bar was properly stocked with Lavian brandy and onion head. As their growth brings them into contact with other factions, new challenges emerge. While the company has largely remained out of major conflicts since the Lu War, there is now a distinct risk that due to proximity and misunderstandings, new conflicts could arise with other Pilots' Federation groups in nearby space. To avoid this, the company operates a number of embassies with their neighbors in order to avoid needless conflict. After all, war is bad for trade. At least, the wrong kind of war is bad for trade. listening to issue 25 of Sagittarius Eye magazine. This issue featured articles written by Lord Tyvin, Mac Winston, M. Lehman, Souverine, Ulon, and Venus. This audio edition featured the voices of Beetlejude, Catisfaction, Edelweiss, MacGyver, Poet Sparrow, Scott Cleverton, Spidey 002, Wotherspoon, and Primetime Casual, and was edited by Dr. Toxic and Wotherspoon. Music was composed and performed by Dustin, Midnight, Driscoll, and Toko So. We would like to thank our Patreon subscribers for their continued support of our efforts to entertain and inform the galaxy by commanders for commanders. For copies of back issues of our magazine, please visit our website at sagittarius-i.com. Sagittarius I was created using assets and imagery from Elite Dangerous with the permission of Frontier Developments PLC for non-commercial purposes. It is not endorsed by nor reflects the views and opinions of Frontier Developments, and no employee of Frontier Developments was involved in the making of it. Sagittarius I. Thank you very much for taking the time to chat. It's been a pleasure. Don't forget, kill your credit balance, not your speed.